I have no right to ask this of any of you. But will you follow me? One last time. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time orc stabber, Andrew Raphael. You're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) And for the first of this new season of film reviews, we're taking a trip to Middle-earth to draw our swords against The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Studios. But is this fantasy epic an epic triumph Or does it crash and burn in a fury of dragon flame? Find out after the trailer. Thorin, you gave a promise. You brought upon them only ruin and death. You've won the mountain, is that not enough? something of mine. This was the last move in a master plan. A plan long in the making. These bats are bred for one purpose. For war. Leave Sauron to me. Bilbo is right. You cannot see what you have become. Everything I did, I did for them. Battle of the Five Armies continues the adventures of Bilbo Baggins, a Shire Hobbit who has discovered a magic ring that imbues him with the power to disappear for large portions of the story. <laughs> Joined on his journey are 13 dwarves, Balin, Dwalin, Oin, Gloin, Philly and Killy, Cuthbert, Dibble and Grub, Tom Cruise, Danny DeVito, and that guy from the UK Haribo advert. <laughs> and they're all in service of their dwarf leader, Thorin Angryface. Based on 50 pages from a book for children, this two and a half hour epic is the first to feature R-rated dwarf on dwarf action. Hide your kids, folks. Things are going to get hairy. Okay, so The Battle of the Five Armies, a film with a title almost as unwieldy as its runtime. So, Andy, what's your experience of The Hobbit? And uh, not just the film, obviously, we're going to go into the book as well. What is your experience of this entire franchise? I mean, my experience of The Lord of the Rings, I wouldn't say it was incredibly deep, uh, especially compared to yourself. I would say it's kind of marginally enthusiastic. Um, I did go and see all three of the Rings movies at the cinema multiple times. Yeah. I had all the extended editions, loved all the appendices, and then bought it again on Blu-ray with all the extended editions and everything. So I've got uh, some degree of an investment in Lord of the Rings. I have read some of the book. I never managed to get beyond Fellowship, though. Yeah. I don't know whether it was because of the way it was written. I I never found them that engrossing to read, Mm -hmm. but that's just my own personal taste, really. Yeah. And that's about it. But I, I would say 
as time's gone on, I've probably rewatched them less and less. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is. I think it's more just to, due to the length of the films and the time that I have. Because <laughs> yes. they're, so, yes. they're so long. And The Hobbit is a lot more patchy. I um, didn't see the first one at all in the cinema. And I think yeah. I saw the second one in the cinema maybe like three times. Higher frame rate? 48 frames per second by any chance? I did, yeah. I did watch it once in higher frame rate, which was fucking horrendous i went with you on that occasion and i've never seen you more angry at a film than when we saw that oh it was fucking it was a shit show and um i think i saw battle of the five armies once at the cinema in normal frame rate yes and that's it really i, th I bought them on blu-ray very sporadically uh, in the extended versions mm -hmm. and it's uh, a testament to their quality that the appendices are far more entertaining than the actual films themselves so uh, yes i I, I'm, I'm the same. I think I've watched the making of documentaries for these films more than I've actually seen the film. <laughs> yeah. Some, sometimes, honestly, I've just yeah. felt, you know what, I fancy like watching the appendices of the Hobbit films, and I've just gone through them without actually seeing the films. Like, I feel yeah, like the you, film. Get a, you get a yeah, sense of those. give it a miss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, speaking of my uh, experience with Lord of the Rings and the world of Middle-earth, I think that the Fellowship of the Ring film was a touchstone in my life. Like, it was a, a point in which I can put a flag... Like, a lot, a lot of people speak about, in terms of their cinematic development, that films like Star Wars and Jaws were moments in their lives that were just monumental, and it changed their look on a certain genre or a certain type of filmmaking. And for me, that was Fellowship of the Ring. When I actually saw that film, I had no idea what I was going to see. Some of my friends from school were going and I just simply tagged along and I wasn't really particularly interested in the fantasy genre either. As far as when I looked at it, I just saw it as being that weird thing that people played with magic cards that was just like Pokemon for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I saw Fellowship of the Ring and that just changed my opinion on the whole genre. I, I didn't understand everything that I had seen in terms of the lore of that series, but I wanted to know more and I read the books. I uh, went to see all the films. I was really looking forward to The Hobbit. And yeah, The Hobbit films came out and they were just kind of a thing I saw. And that, that's quite sad considering like how much the Lord of the Rings series uh, was a monumental thing for me. And it's, it, it still remains to this day. I've definitely watched it less in recent years just because, you know, my life has changed in terms of having kids. I don't really have the time to put uh, away for watching 10 hours worth of movies, you know, yeah. especially like the three hours that's required for each watch of one of those films all in one go. I, I don't have that anymore. Mm. I just recently started to get my daughter into it as well. She started watching it on and off as well. And she's, she's taken to it quite well, actually. She's watched the theatrical version of fellowship and the two towers and for a four-year-old it's actually held her attention quite well i mean to be honest if it's not animated she isn't watching it mm. <laughs> at the moment that's how she feels so mm. uh yeah when it when it comes to the hobbit very much looking forward to it but um yeah i found that by the time we actually got to battle of the five armies i remember thinking even having read the book i was like you know th th this is the one where it's all going to come together and to see that it actually didn't yeah it kind of tarnished my opinion of what had come before as well and and that's something i want to get into on the episode as well so i guess really before we begin um as we do on all of our shows we're continuing the trend we're going to be looking at the context as well now with the hobbit battle of five armies there's a lot of context that we can get into in terms of the making of these films because 
the making of these films goes back years. It actually predates Lord of the Rings as well, if you follow it back far enough. And especially even with Peter Jackson's interaction with this series, originally his intent was to make a trilogy with the first film being The Hobbit. Obviously, that didn't come to pass, and that was due to a rights issue with the uh, the Hobbit book. MGM actually owned the rights, as far as I'm aware, when it actually came to making these films. Yeah, yeah. And and we can we can get into all of that. That that's certainly something in which you know you can do a lot of reading about. But when it comes to the Battle of the Five Armies, I really want to keep it about why is this film the way that it is? Because even against the previous Hobbit films, there's a disconnect with this particular film for me. And I want to try and focus our attention down to really what are the key points that influenced this film's final form. And we will get into the other stuff, but I think that's going to be a natural progression of the show, something that just simply comes up as we discuss certain points of this this film, because you can't help but bring that into the conversation. I would say the two elements I think are really like poignant in the history of this film. One is the exit of Guillermo del Toro from the series, because I think he was very much set on it being a two-film series. And it, at one point, it was going to be a completely different form entirely. Yeah. And then we also have to look at the decision to go from two films to three and where that came from as well, what that was born out of. So, Andy, do you have any um, any opinion or um, have you done any research in terms of uh, where we begin on this matter? I mean, it's a very long and complicated journey and there's other publications and documentaries that cover it in great detail so uh, yeah it's um, one of those things that i think maybe if you're more interested in it, it might be a good idea to dig around to see what you can see but it, it the issues come down to the fact that the original lord of the rings was they always joke as it being the the biggest low budget film of all time and it being overseen by one studio which was at the time still independent the house of freddy yeah a new line cinema yeah so new line cinema bankrolling an incredibly ambitious project which didn't really have enough money for what it really needed to do yeah and they pulled a rabbit out of the hat against all the odds and then this film is the antithesis of that situation where you have multiple major studios involved mm-hmm. and production companies involved in this film series it's that always that problem where you've had a big hit now you've got all these other people who are, are not as talented yeah. or invested trying to get in and have a slice of the pie and yeah. um, basically just fuck everything up so <laughs> that's, yeah pretty, that's it in a nutshell pretty much yeah yeah i mean with the lord of the rings as well that was nearly a disney film when the yeah. weinsteins were involved with the making of that film i think they actually still came away with an incredibly high percentage of the profit for those particular films considering that they didn't actually have any further creative input yeah. because disney and michael eisner ultimately passed on those films as well and peter jackson was allowed to shop them about new line cinema were the last people that they actually went to they went to them with two films and new line cinema were like well why not make three out of this you know keep it to the books mm. and i will say as well with the with the setup that they had with shooting largely in new zealand they could distance themselves a considerable amount from the studio so they were insulated in that way they could make the films that they wanted to make within a quite restrictive budget considering the scope of what they had i mean those films ultimately came down to 90 million dollars 
per piece. Now, that's the established budget. That's the budget that you can find online for those films. I will say that with pickups, because Two Towers had extensive yeah. reshoots <laughs> yeah. and then Return of the King had even more so extensive reshoots, when you factor that, it starts to go up a considerable amount more. But yeah, they still had a restrictive budget to make those films, so they had to get creative with what they had. They created new technologies, they brought in old technologies as well, and they were allowed to just essentially leave themselves to it to do what they wanted to do. And when we look at The Hobbit, so many different studios are involved and so many different producers are involved in this kind of creative pot that it comes down to that thing as well that there are certainly too many cooks here. And the reason that I'm really bringing this up as well is because I think that, plays a significant part in the Guillermo del Toro issue and eventually him exiting the project. Now, he was actually on board for the, this series for a considerable amount of time, a number of years, in fact. Originally, and I remember this being announced, it was going to be that he was going to make one film that was based on the book The Hobbit, and that was going to be very Guillermo del Toro. It was going to be entrenched in his idea of what Middle-earth should be, with his ideas of what the design should be. He wanted to bring in far more practical elements. He also is quoted as saying that he wanted to do for animatronics, what the Lord of the Rings trilogy did for CGI. Yeah. He wanted to advance the animatronic landscape by 10 years to make that a more feasible prospect for new filmmakers again, which is music to my ears, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, And he had these ideas as well of what that should be. And then there was going to be this second film that was actually going to be a bridge film. It was actually going to not be The Hobbit and not be The Lord of the Rings, but it was going to be another adventure built out of the appendices from The Return of the King book. So who knows what form that would have taken. Eventually, though, after a good solid year of script writing and script development, they came to the conclusion that they were going to have to do The Hobbit as two films. And he still had this idea that the first one was going to be a Guillermo del Toro film, and then the second one was going to slowly ease its way into Peter Jackson's Middle Earth, bridging the gap. And again, it sounds like there's some interesting elements at play. Uh, Ron Perlman was going to be in it as Bjorn as well. <laughs> And at one point, he had said that he wanted uh, Ron Perlman to do the voice of Smaug, but had been, you know, not asked him as of, the, as of then. Could have been interesting. However, Guillermo del Toro, it never came to pass. Now, the official party line on that matter is, oh, well, the whole issue with the rights of the film, with MGM pushing it back for another so many months, because there was uh, some rights issues that had to be resolved before filming could commence. Uh, this is one of those things where, MGM owned the rights to The Hobbit, but uh, New Line Cinema had the rights to The Lord of the Rings appendices and stuff like that, and they wanted to work together with Peter Jackson involved, but there were so many disputes over pay that had to be resolved as well. There were some disputes with Peter Jackson. You can read plenty of that online. You can go to the Wikipedia, you can see it in the appendices. There's plenty of articles that you can go to that go into the depth of the financial landscape for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But the party line is just simply that one of the delays was really what forced Guillermo del Toro to hang up his hat and say, I can't do this. But Lindsay Ellis goes into this on her documentary, and you can see it from the BBC, uh, BBC interview with Guillermo del Toro. He doesn't sound like a man who hung up his hat for this no. film that said, I'm, I'm leaving. He certainly <laughs> comes across as somebody that was pushed. What's your opinion of this? <laughs> I mean, why would you? I mean... <laughs> Like it's such a stupid party line because it's so fu it's so uh, far fetched 
that someone will go, yeah. oh, yeah, I just want to do other things. You know, I'll, I'll dump this project of a lifetime. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, after investing two years of your life. Yeah, he was totally pushed. There's no no doubt about it. And I think the studio just bulked at what he wanted to do, which was to make an accurate version of the book, <laughs> you know, yes. and, yeah. and get the feel. Because that's the big elephant in the room here, really, is the fact that the studio really just wanted Lord of the Rings again. Yes. And when you read The Hobbit, it's nothing like The Lord of the Rings. I mean, no. the, the writing style in each of those two books is completely different. And, and this is one thing I wanted to maybe clear up now before we get into it. I actually genuinely think there is a lot of material in The Hobbit because of the way it's written. Yes. I'm actually not going to be that much of a... I'm not a Tolkien, like, you know, I'm not going to lick his arsehole or anything like that. There are a lot of problems in The Hobbit, like, on a story front. It's not a perfect book, in my opinion. And because and also, they even talk about it in the in the appendices where his publishers wanted an ending. He, he did, the, the book wasn't yes, finished. Yeah. So he sort of, like, rushed an ending. And you can totally tell that he... You can tell. He couldn't be asked and just went, yeah, fuck so it. So much happens in our yeah. last 50 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is as well, like because the, the Lord of the Rings happened very organically after it and it was originally meant to be you know, a direct sequel to The Hobbit and probably would have continued its writing style, but as he got more into it, it got more detailed and it just became this yeah. mammoth thing which ended up being split into three publications. Mm-hmm. And I think he did go back at one point and slightly amend the original Hobbit text to, to make it be more in line. That is right. The version of The Hobbit that we read now is essentially like the George Lucas special edition of yeah, the hobbit yeah. uh, because he did go back and retool it to fit more into the lord of the rings uh, middle earth that he had established there yeah but even so i still think the differences are apparent in terms oh, yeah. of the tone and yeah. style and also like to be fair to the filmmakers and having to fill in the blanks and, and flesh things out the book is so abbreviated because of the way it's written which is very much like a a children's fable if he'd actually gone back and rewritten the whole book in the style of the Lord of the Rings, you probably would have ended up with the book, which is probably about half the length of the Lord of the Rings. It probably yes, would have been about a good I, 500, agree. 600 pages of text. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be this sort of really short book because there is a lot in there mm-hmm. and a lot of it is glossed over. And yeah, it does have quite a lot of structural issues. You know, so for uh, adapting that book into something that would, that would work in a, in a visual medium, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. So I'm just sort of laying that on the table from the start because I think a lot of people go into looking at oh why did they make three films of The Hobbit this little children's book and but when you actually go into it it's a bit more complicated than that I think I would agree I mean I certainly think that th- there is at least like two films worth of material yeah. in here if you are going to elaborate it on the same w- in the same way that The Lord of the Rings is in terms of how that presents Middle Earth I hope it wasn't in similar in tone or that type of thing I do wish it had more difference in that way but if you're going to make a a Hobbit film, there are certain elements that no matter what you need to elaborate on because of how breezed over they are. For example, the death of Thorin in the the book is something that happens off screen while the main character is unconscious Bilbo comes too and he just happens across Thorin before he dies who's who's on a stretcher with spears and arrow holes in him and then he he gives one last speech and Bilbo walks away then we don't even see him die (laughs) Bilbo just goes away and cries in his tent and Thorin is supposedly dies off screen somewhere and then is um, 
you know, buried in his tomb. Well, it's, it's more than you get for Bomber, Philly, Killy and Bard, <laughs> which are just yes, mentioned all in one sentence as, of, as, as having died in this, in this supposedly huge battle, which is like three sentences long. That is very true. Yeah. <laughs> and I can see that actually communicating this in a visual medium, there are certain elaborations that you're going to have to make. And my issue isn't so much the unwieldy length of these films. I know a lot of people say that, oh, how did they make this, um, I don't know, like 600 minutes or whatever it is of, it's obviously more than that, actually, of The Hobbit, a book that is 270 pages long. And my opinion isn't that you can't do that. It's more so that they did it wrong. And that's something I want to get into, really, because I do think even in the Battle of the Five Armies, in terms of what actually happens, there's enough material there, if you elaborate on it, in the way that really the book demands that you do, that you can make interesting and exciting, and there's, there's enough plot points that happen to really hang a film on, but they don't do it in a way that grabs me. I'm just really very apathetic towards this film, essentially. But yeah, so so we have Guillermo del Toro, who's uh, left the project then. And then the next big thing that happens really is, while we're on the subject, is going from two films to three films, really. Um, the decision that was made. Because although, given my last statement about that you can make a Hobbit film that is quite a lengthy adaption... And perhaps that is the thing that needs to be done. However, when I say that they did it wrong, it really comes down to this particular issue. And that is that essentially they didn't give Peter Jackson the prep time that he needed in order to make these films. And so a lot of it is just him really making it up on the fly, which considering the epic nature of the films, the technology that's involved, the uh, the sheer number of crew members that are involved in making these films, and you have at the top of it a director that hasn't been given the time to even really hammer down the script to nail that. And it results in him really relying on a fix-it-in-post mentality that I think uh, resulted in them really making a third film out of necessity, not of narrative, but simply a necessity of production, just so that they could give themselves the breathing space not to think about a particularly uh, complex battle sequence. And I think that is where this film essentially falls down. Yeah, I mean, I think the third film is also a studio. If it wasn't their idea, they would definitely be in favour of it because not even just for the financial thing of having you know a third film yeah you know for pretty much you know maybe not that much extra money but um the fact that because of this rights issue because you have mgm new line warner brothers the weinstein company and as it saws yep. annets as well yes the way that that deal worked is that they would get a cut but only from film one mm -hmm. so i'm thinking from warner brothers perspective if they made another film they can get more money out of their share they, instead of just getting one extra film, they get two extra films out of yeah. this. And they only actually still have to pay Weinstein's and Zanet's for the first film because it seemed very fishy. I'm trying to think when they announced it, they announced it very, very close to the release of the first movie that they, they were did, turning yeah. it into three. So I imagine they didn't inform the other parties. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it, and it is a decision that kind of, uh, when you take that decision and start to look at the series and track it back essentially from battle of five armies and look at really when you start to deconstruct what form or shape the original scripts actually had taken up until that point you start to see in the previous films 
And I think, to be honest, I can tell as clear as day where the elaborations are in those films because there's far less thought put into elements of those previous films. Now, one of them that always sticks out as clear as day is something that Lindsay Ellis actually picked up on as well. And I remember sat in the cinema thinking, why are they doing this? And that is like the Nazgul theme, the Ringwraith theme being used for Thor and Oakenshield in An Unexpected Journey. That whole segment was something that was, it was there in a form, but it was much smaller and and, uh, not as elaborate. It wasn't meant to be the concluding set piece of the film. That was apparently, from what I've read, the thing that was supposed to conclude um, An Unexpected Journey was the barrel ride sequence. That was supposed to be with that film. And it was going to end with Bard coming across the hobbits and we just see his silhouette in the sun um, holding his bow. And that's where the film cuts. And then you cut to black and the next one picks up exactly from there. So this whole set piece at the end of An Unexpected Journey, that was entirely thought about on the fly. So it's like... The decision to give themselves more time to think about Battle of Five Armies meant that they had to completely rethink the films that came before. And those films suffer at the exact points where they've had to elaborate on these issues. Desolation of Smog has it as well with the end of that film. There's a whole... They essentially Alien 3 it. The whole yeah. ending of that film is Alien uh. 3 where they've got to lure Smaug into a... Um, into the furnace! Into the furnace, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, to try and drown yeah. him in gold. And that whole segment is just... There's a point in which it just goes fully green screen, where it's just actors against green screen. And and that is where that film suffers as well. Yeah, and they've had to artificially construct climaxes and conclusions onto yeah. these films. And they, I remember, yeah, watch, if you watch that part in the appendices where they're just properly flying by the seat of their pants <laughs> to try and come up with a conclusion for the second film... It's a bit of a shambles, really. Like, yeah. it's, I feel sorry for everyone involved because basically they're all up like 24 hours a day on this thing for weeks on end and yeah. just to try and get this bloody thing finished. And you've got actors on green screens as well. And it's, this is even for Battle of... This is especially for Battle of Five Armies. But you've got actors on entirely green screen environments reacting to events and backgrounds that they don't actually have in place yet that they have actually no. haven't even decided for example we have that whole segment of thorin making this like it's supposed to be an absolutely pivotal moment in the arc of thorin oakenshield as he kind of overcomes this um gold fever that he has dragon fever or whatever it is that they call it and um, the mm. dragon sickness where he's um suddenly just obsessed with wealth and they have this moment in which he sees the dark side of himself consumed by the gold and he overcomes it and is triumphant. And they have the actor, uh, Richard Armitage, acting against this green screen with that and they don't actually have an idea of what's going on in the background. They didn't actually make the decision that this was going to take place on that golden floor until like the 11th hour. They had already yeah. shot all of the material. That's what it feels like for the entirety of this film for me, that there's this disconnect between what the actors are doing and whatever's happening just behind them or around them or in the environment that they're in. It just feels completely disconnected. I think I've mentioned it to you before that it feels like this film does take place in the world's largest garage. Like <laughs> It does feel like a homemade movie when you uh, break it down to a certain style that it's just people acting against green screen. I mean, it could be the incredible bulk. Oh, yeah. The amazing yeah. bulk. The amazing bulk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird combination of a film made in, in, in your dad's garage and the absolute upper echelons of filmmaking technology and that being abused 
Yes, yeah. The effects guys are abused because they're being asked to do things that are well beyond their remit to try and make things work. And then the actors are being abused because they're basically being made to do things (laughs) and act to things that they don't even know what they're even acting against. Yeah. And they're just being plonked in the scene. And yeah, the whole thing is just a mess. And you can see it's as clear as day, even without any audio information or you telling about anything. If you just watch the appendices from The Lord of the Rings and then The Hobbit, in complete silence, you can immediately tell that there's something very different about the two. Because although you do get instances in The Lord of the Rings where they do use green screen or blue screen to fill Mm -hmm. out backgrounds, you're dealing with a situation where you have many more real sets, many more real locations. They are purposely shooting scenes for specific purposes. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, with a certain degree for revision, because they did revise quite a lot of the things in the, especially in the second and third films of that trilogy yeah. but there is a clear difference in how they made those films mm-hmm. and yeah a lot of it comes back to that lack of pre-production time and also just the general studio meddling where i imagine they almost like they didn't want to invest too much in something because they it might get changed by somebody yeah so let's just do it on green screen so we can change the background or the situation <laughs> i would never say that these films are at that level but it's it's very Star Wars prequely. Yeah. The way they made these films. I mean, they're still better films than the Star Wars prequels because, you know, you actually have acting and dialogue that actually works. Yes. But the way that the films are made and, and the things where I would say this is not how you make a good film, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the same mistakes they seem to have got lost in or not even got lost in. They've had to do these things because yeah. of the situation that they're in. I agree with you. I mean, I don't think that this is... When we actually look at the films objectively, I don't think that we are at Star Wars prequel level in terms of the filmmaking that's on display. Mm -hmm. I think that Peter Jackson and his crew are better filmmakers. And one of the things that strikes me from the making of uh, The Appendices is that Peter Jackson, in comparison to George Lucas, Peter Jackson is active on set. He's bouncing around his actors. He's, um, He's involved in really decisions that they're making at the time there are moments i would say that when they move the production to the volume and he's just simply sat behind the screen just making decisions there because that's where he has to be that's where it starts to feel george lucas but when we have real actors and real sets you can see that there's a spark alive in jackson and that's the difference between i would say jackson and lucas in terms of this whole world is that we have somebody who is a genuine filmmaker in 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 jackson not to say that george lucas isn't but he's not really a director <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and he would say that as well. He has said that in the past. It's not something that he enjoys doing. And although I would say that Jackson overall, looking at this film, this isn't an enjoyable experience for him. You can see that there are moments where, and maybe this is just in the uh, the propaganda that the behind the scenes documentaries presents. But you can see that people like being around Jackson and Jackson likes being around people. And he has this kind of wry, dry sense of humor as well that translates really quite well. But at the same time, I do feel like particularly Battle of Five Armies and the prequels share some very similar faults in terms of like even though we have these actors that are are much better with dialogue that's much better, we have them lost on green screen environments essentially. And I think about some of the scenes of the the battle sequences with some of the actors and some of the main actors and 
watching the appendices, I was suddenly struck by that image of Natalie Portman trying to act against the uh, the conveyor belt sequence <laughs> in Attack <laughs> yeah. of the Clones. Yeah. And I was like, this is exactly that. This is exactly that replayed. Yeah. We have Natalie Portman, who is an actress I quite like, just completely lost in a CGI environment being told we'll finish it in post don't you worry i mean i would say that entire droid factory sequence in attack of the clones is the absolute nadir of the entire star wars series like yeah it still is fucking horrendous especially when yeah. you get into those hijinks with c-3po and his head being detached <laughs> from his body and put on a droid and st- it's just oh god this is a real drag oh it makes my skin <laughs> crawl just thinking about it <laughs> it's just horrendous i mean there's nothing quite as bad as that but it is funny thinking about it that that climax to smaug it does evoke memories of that droid factory sequence it does have quite yes, a few similarities does, yeah. in the way it's made even down to the fact that you have that ridiculous situation of thorin in stuck, that in that little in boat the... going down yeah, the lava exactly. stream and it's like fucking hell you'll be burnt to a crisp and we have the moment as well where people are actually stuck in the uh, are they called the kilns the big pots oh, yeah. as well yeah we have a moment as well where dwarves are stuck in those pots much the same as they are in um the t- that is the droid factory sequence of the hobbits it is yeah 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 absolutely so yeah so getting into really the battle of the five armies as i say one of the things that i have said is that the the length is not an issue for me it's, it's that the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the girth the girth i have an issue yes, with no yes. well i would say that this is all length no girth mm. Actually, if we're going to talk about the Hobbit series, it feels like, and to use a quote from Bilbo Baggins himself, it it's feels a like... It's a neon uh, dildo. <laughs> it feels like too little butter spread thin over yeah. bread. That's how this feels to me, in that I think, especially after rereading The Hobbit, I'm like, I think you can go two ways with the book, by the way. I think you can either elaborate on everything that's in the book and make an interesting two-film maybe three film at a push but i would say more so two mm-hmm. film series or you can go the other way where you strip it down to its bare essentials get rid of things like bayon and stuff that if you're making a film doesn't really add much to the to the overall um story you can get rid of you know like much like they did with tom bombadil in lord of the rings yeah yeah excise it and and narrow it down to just its bare essentials and make one film mm-hmm. but either way i think there are correct ways to do either option Unfortunately, this one doesn't do that. And to give an example of things that I think elaborate on the material, but in the wrong way, I want to mention straight off the character of Toriel. Or Toriel or whatever. Toriel. Because that that was a big deal when these films were coming out. There was this big push for, oh, well... And the book is a very much a sausage fest in terms of it's all dicks and nothing else. I don't particularly mind the inclusion of a feminine presence in The Hobbit, especially considering that there are... You, you know what? For me personally, you could have even made one of the dwarves a woman. Yeah. And I would not have cared because those dwarves on the book and in the final films as well are so peripheral to the overall story like i don't know why there's so many of them yeah because even in the story tolkien doesn't really justify and doesn't really establish what kind of characters these dwarves have they're very much characterless yeah you could have changed one of them to a woman i wouldn't have cared and i don't care that there's a feminine presence in toriel either but in terms of what they do for that character and especially in this film with the whole love interest which feels very twilight 
that to me feels like a studio mandate that's come down and been like, well, love triangles are in at the moment, and we want something that's going to appeal to the 13-year-olds in the crowd that have been reading Twilight and, I don't know, Mortal Instruments or whatever. Yeah. That feels very young adult fiction to me. Yeah, and, and there's watching the Evangeline Lily interview earlier that whole love triangle thing was all reshoot material as well like apparently yeah. she said when, when she joined the production she said as long as i am not involved in some sort of love triangle because she has a you know a history of being involved in those kind of things in the past and also in real life yes <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah and apparently yeah they went through all of the main principal photography without that being there yeah and then, uh, lo and behold, when they returned a year later to do all the reshoots, this love triangle popped up, which they were made yeah. to do. So um, this is definitely a uh, studio mandate. And I think it's very apparent because it's not a perfect film by any means, but there's much less of that stuff going on in the first film. Yes. Whereas when you get to films two and three, you can tell that there's been some tinkering going on. Yes. Quite significantly, because a lot, you know, all yeah. that reshoot stuff is for films two and three. And also, I go into those dwarves as well. I've always thought it may be complete like heresy, but I think if you are adapting something like this, which I genuinely do think is a, a book that is flawed, it's not perfect. I think Lord of the Rings, for me personally, is perfection. I, I love those books yeah i've bought many different versions of those books but the hobbit i agree with you is it's very wishy-washy very episodic it has its own charm but it's um clearly by an author who's finding his feet within the genre that he's essentially creating but it's it doesn't feel fully formed in the same way that lord of the rings is but i would go as far to say if you're adapting this it would have been a good idea really to have made that band of dwarves much smaller and then yeah. with that, you would have been able to have made each individual dwarf their own distinct character. Yeah. And they would have been able to have contributed positively to the story because you just get that feeling all throughout the, the films that they are really struggling yeah. as to what to do with those dwarves. Even though they've tried to make them look distinctive from one another, they can only do so much with, with some of them. And there's a sense by the third film that they've given up on the idea as well. Yeah, they've completely forgotten. Of even given the peripheral dwarves any kind of character or presence. I mean, when we start to establish characters who don't speak but are just there... Whenever I see those type of characters in films that are just, their whole character is a gimmick or a quirk, as there are with several of the dwarfs. We have the one that steals, and the one with the axe head in is stuck in his skull. <laughs> That's when I think the alarm bells go off in my mind in which, well, why is that character there at all if that's mm. all they're contributing? And I certainly feel that with this film as well. I mean, I know that it's a thing that, well, just before we continue, I will say I agree with you as well that the way that you could have gone about this is just simply by taking a few of the dwarfs out of the picture entirely. Because when we look at Fellowship of the Ring and we have a large cast of characters in that film, I can name all of those characters and tell you who is playing them and give you an idea of what that character is using that whole red letter media thing as well as describe this character without mentioning what they look like or what their gender is and using their name. Yeah, I can do that with Fellowship of the Ring, but when it comes to the Hobbit films and it comes to those dwarves in particular, I can't do that with them. I can give you all of their names. I've read the material. I've seen the appendices. I know what their names are. I can't tell you which one's which. I can tell you, like, Philly, Killy, Bomber, the James Nesbitt one. 
<laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Um, Thorin Oakenshield. But it it just becomes a mess for me. Like I I I know all of the names of these dwarves, but I have no idea who's playing who. That is kind of an issue of the book. But at some point, especially for the third film, they just simply stopped trying to make that work. Yeah, and. That comes down to that first issue that we have, really, which is the pre-production side of things. They never had it set in stone what this film was going to be, what this series was going to be. And as a result, it's kind of faltered. You can track like every issue back down to that whole lack of pre-production time. And in the documentary, uh, I think, uh, what's his name? Richard Taylor, yeah. the wetter guy who works on all of the practical effects and he also does some work on the digital side as well. He talks about, like, in Lord of the Rings, him having a year to prepare all of the armor for the orcs and that type of thing. And he said that with The Hobbit, he had something like three weeks. So there was no shots of him photographed against racks and racks of armor and, and helmets and that type of thing. Instead, it was just kind of like thinking it up on the fly. And when you start to look at the decisions that were made while shooting the fact that most of the orcs are entirely digital and that type of thing it all tracks back to that decision this decision to rush into production rather than wait until they had the solid foundation set in place to know what they're making and it still baffles me to this day that they made these three films without having it set in stone what the films were going to be mm-hmm. it once more makes me think of that short-term mentality that some studios and producers have where it's all about appeasing that shareholder meeting that's at the end of the year rather than looking at the long-term benefits of having something that's genuinely good yeah it, it definitely felt like they had a, some sort of gun to their head where it's like you start this now or so we're going somewhere else yeah and you know when you start going into that whole like hobbit law you know when you've got a situation where an american film studio interferes in the uh, labor laws of a sovereign country and stuff like that it gets very (laughs) very 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 murky and and, uh just not good at all yeah and every single part of this film just feels like they want something that's like lord of the rings but they're doing everything in their power to undermine that situation that created that those original films yeah and this is where i'm always like these fucking business people are the stupidest fucking people in the world (laughs) because they just can't seem to get a grasp of if you treat people well they will make a good film for you and actually make you more money because people will like the films more and they'll have a longer shelf life because there's always that wonderful quote i can't remember who said it it was on a very old documentary that i saw and it's always stayed with me. I, I've known it since I was about six or seven years old, where the guy is a guy in Universal basically says, like, in terms of the cost of a picture, if it's a bad picture, they're always talking about how much it cost. Yeah. If it's a good picture, it doesn't matter how much it costs because that film has a long life. It'll just keep going yeah. and going and going. Mm-hmm. And I've always taken that with me because you see it time and time again where these decisions are made for very short-term monetary gain. They have absolutely yeah. nothing to do with the artistic things. They often exploit a lot of people. And it's all for nothing. Because even though this film's made, you know, a reasonable amount of money, they didn't make as much money as Lord of the Rings films did. Yeah. Especially when you when you factor in their budget. And also, I imagine when people are buying this new 4K version of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, I imagine more copies of the Lord of the Rings are going to be shifted than that than the ones for the Hobbit. Oh, you can already see that in terms yeah. of the sales. I was I, I, I actually received both box sets for Christmas. So go me. <laughs> and <laughs> And watching watching The Hobbit as well in the 4K version, 
is definitely a much improved colour grading for these films, especially for the Battle of the Five Armies. And one of the things that Peter Jackson has actually gone back to do is really to add some sort of visual coherence between the two separate series because when he watched them back, he realised that The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, they felt visually completely different. Not just in terms of what they shot on because the whole digital verse film thing is something that I'm sure we're going to touch upon very shortly but just in terms of like the colour palette of these films, they feel completely different and almost as if they don't take place in the same universe. So he went back and he's recolor corrected the films to feel like they have some sort of overlap and also he's touched up some of the digital effects. And when when he talks about on this little snippet that I saw of, of touching up the digital effects, he mainly shows scenes from Battle of the Five Armies, <laughs> specifically the scene with the ring wraiths yeah. at Dol Guldor, which is a scene I fucking hated mm. when I saw it at the cinema. And I still don't like it. I still think it's really fucking gimmicky. I really like Christopher Lee in that moment. Mm. You know what? I was actually speaking to my wife about this, but the whole Christopher Lee element of that whole section with the the face-off against Sauron, the necromancer, and the the ring race, and then you have Christopher Lee at the end of it saying, um, leave Sauron to me and all that. Leave Sauron to me. And I was like, I want to see that film of (laughs) Saruman going to the east and being corrupted by Sauron. Because when he says, leave Sauron to me, he means it. He really really fucking means it. Bless him. And it's like, like... I hope Amazon are listening. I want to see that series. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it makes me think that Peter Jackson, he knows that these films are, and you can see from the appendices, but he knows that these films are unfinished completely unfinished and not not to a certain standard because he's still finishing them now <laughs> you know even with these 4k releases yeah but what, what would you say about peter jackson uh throwing that out there what do you think about peter jackson returning to the middle earth world i just have very mixed feelings because i think one it's obviously not something that he wanted to do no because that's the reason why guillermo del toro was hired in the first place you know, he very much wanted to have some involvement, you know, being involved in the screenplay and producing, but be much more have a backseat role. I think that's why he said no completely, even to an exec producer credit on the Amazon series. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm not even going to risk the idea of me being in a director's chair because somebody else dropped out. Yeah. And, and even just like when you start looking into this Hobbit law stuff, it gets very murky and it's like everything's really uncomfortable in terms of like, the yeah. li- you know, the allegiances, like, you know, am I representing New Zealand? Am I representing the studio? And it's like, yeah, it just gets very complicated very quickly. And you can see the struggle that yeah. he's in constantly in the appendices. Like, you just looks like, am I saying yes to what the studio is? Am I? You can definitely see a man in conflict. And also you can see the impact on his health that it's had as well. Because yeah. <laughs> you always know where you are in the appendices because... You know you're early on in the production when Peter Jackson's thin, and then you know you're yeah. later on when he's really like, you know, basically how yeah. he was before. Yeah. Pretty much. It's sorry to say, but you can really see it. And I say that as somebody that's lost weight and put on weight and lost weight and put on weight. <laughs> you can definitely see with Peter Jackson where he is in terms of his mental health, mm. considering uh, his weight gain as that series goes on. But, you know, when Guillermo del Toro left the production, I'm going to go through a few names that they actually um, touted yeah. as possible replacements for Guillermo del Toro if Peter Jackson said no. They always wanted Peter Jackson, and I think they would have thrown any amount of money at him in order to get him in the director's chair. And some of the names that were involved, just in case that didn't work for Peter Jackson, were 
and I understand this, David Yates, who had worked on the Harry Potter films mm-hmm. and continues to with the uh, Fantastic Beast films, a uh, series that's really ironically named. Continues to run it into the ground. <laughs> it's so I I want to do The Crimes of Grindelwald oh, on totally. this show because I be one we got to do. fucking hated it. Oh. Um, okay, so yes, so we had David, David Yates, and I'm going to go into some other ones. We had Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, because he has a pre-existing relationship with uh, Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. They nearly made Halo together, and they did make District Nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some other names: David Dobkin and Brett Ratner. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the, the rat from the Rat Pack himself. Oh. It's Brett Ratner. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that we ended up with Peter Jackson, but I don't think we got Peter Jackson at his best. Obviously, no. We kind of got Peter Jackson under the worst type of circumstances that we could <laughs> yeah. get him. Yeah, and and you can tell that he's been forced into this position where he's having to defend decisions that aren't his own. And I would have to go as far to say, because this is the big elephant in the room, Yeah, I actually think that the decision to shoot at high frame rate and in 3D wasn't his decision. That, now, that was a question I was going to ask you, because as much as I, I always say about Peter Jackson that I really feel for him when I watch this film, I think that some of the decisions that he's made as well are part of the circumstances have damaged the film, but he's kind of working under the worst circumstances that you can for this type of film. But when it comes to the higher frame rate decision and the digital decision, the big question that I have is... Is that his decision? Mm. Or is that one of these studio ideas that we've got to be doing something new? We've got to be doing something that we can market. Yeah, just because of all the technical issues that it garnered, because the decision to make it high frame rate and in 3D meant that they couldn't really do model work. Yep. Uh, they couldn't do forced perspective and they couldn't do uh, traditional mats. Yes. So the reason they you know, they were reliant on CGI because that's the kind of tool they had to work with. But also, I think the other problem they had is because they had this 48 frames per second and you're basically rendering twice the amount of frames per second, the strain yeah. on the CGI is very telling all the way through the all three films. But I've seen Gemini, man. I know that it can work. <laughs> And I don't know about you as well, because there's probably a couple of people that we're going to talk about when we when we go through this. But in when you watch the appendices, there's there's a quite a few notable absences from the original Lord of the Rings appendices that are quite noticeable, considering they're all still involved in the film. Yes, uh, and the big one is the Andrew absence Lesney. of abs- of Andrew Lesney. Yeah. And it seems to be also as well when you watch a little bit of footage, especially towards the end, that I'm not sure whether they're on the best terms, uh, him and Jackson. Yeah. Because even like when he hands him the last clapperboard at the end, that it feels a bit frosty. And also like when you watch the little tribute that they did to Andrew Lesney on the on the disc of Battle of Five yeah. Armies, Peter Jackson is noticeably absent from uh, talking yeah. about him. It's only Philippa Boynes that, that talks about him. And it just doesn't feel right to me. This is just conjecture on my part. This is just my opinion. But I honestly think it's this idea that when shooting... Because all of the green screen stuff would have come so much later in the production. Mm. It would have been that last kind of like whole like leg of the production, that last third. And you're shooting just day after day of people against green screen. 
as a cinematographer, you must be just sitting there thinking, anybody can do this. Yeah. Anybody could fucking do this. And it's so built in terms of what the visual effects artists are providing, what 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 they have already pre-vised and that type of thing, that as a visual effects artist, uh, uh, sorry, as a cinematographer, it must be so unrewarding yeah. to go through that whole experience that I can't help but feel that that has something to do with it. Mm. And you definitely do feel the absence of Andrew Lesney. And the other one that I think that suffers that you were, uh, the sections dedicated to him in the films, less so, weirdly enough, in Battle of the Five Armies, but Howard Shaw. Yeah. Howard Shaw is another person whose absence is certainly felt. And I think that's because, I mean, with Lord of the Rings, they shipped him out to New Zealand. He was there to conduct the music, to meet the demands of the films, to really put the music together in terms of how the... Because those are films as well that changed as it went on, but he was there and present throughout to meet those demands. And then you have the whole experience with King Kong where um, Howard Shaw left late in the production, which there's a big question mark over whether or not that came from the studio or whether or not it was something that Peter Jackson made. People involved with the production, from what I've seen online, have said it's a combination of the two. Peter Jackson likes to retool his music very late in production, which some composers really hate. So he plays about with scenes a little bit too much. And there was also a note that came down from the studio in that film that Peter Jackson was spending far too much money on that film. And one of the elements that they wanted to change in order to get some sort of ownership over the film was the music that was being written. So I think the King Kong thing, Howard Shaw not feeling protected by Peter Jackson for that film, he left, but he couldn't make another Middle Earth film without Howard Shaw because he's so inbuilt to that identity. Mm. And But Howard Shaw never came to New Zealand. He no. stayed at home, he wrote the themes, he shipped them over, and then they edited the fuck out of that music yeah, to make yeah. it fit whatever they were filming, essentially. They had a whole separate section of like composers and orchestra available at New Zealand yeah. to kind of refit whatever Howard Shaw had written to meet the film. And that's how we ended up with like the Nazgul theme for Thorin Oakenshield and <laughs> um, an unexpected journey. Just a lack of forethought and a lack of the lack of care really. Yeah. They just needed a punchy theme that people would recognize and they went with that. And one of the things that I always hold for this series is that there's no real iconic theme to hang on the Hobbit series. I know the Fellowship theme and I know the Shire theme from uh, Lord of the Rings. Like, I, I, There's plenty of others that I know as well. But there's so many like I, iconic themes that if I hear, I know oh, I'm in a place yeah. and a time straight away. With the Hobbit, I think they touched upon it once with the Misty Mountains theme in An Unexpected Journey. Yeah, that's the only one. And for whatever reason, they abandoned it straight afterwards and went with it. Apparently, that was a decision as well that came from the top. They wanted <laughs> a new theme. They didn't like the Misty Mountains one. They wanted to go with something else. And so they, they created a new theme as well for the for the dwarfs. And it ends up with this film, this series of films that just doesn't have an identity for me. No. And yeah, just going back to the decision to use the digital cameras as well. I mean, yeah, one, there's no continuity with the previous trilogy, which was all expertly shot on film. But also, I think an even bigger elephant in the room is that grade. Yeah. It makes me laugh, actually, when you watch the appendices and they do those, um, you know, and they do like before and after comparisons. Yeah. Pretty much every shot where they do a before and after comparison, the raw footage looks much nicer than the uh, so finished much better. version. 
So in a way, the it's 4K like, is completely done away with. Because in a way, well. I can't, I, I can't really have blamed the decision to use the reds because there would have been a way to have made that look much nicer and uh, and match yeah. the footage of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, I've not seen the HD. I tried downloading it before, but I'm not sure whether I got the right version because it still looked very much like the original to me. Yeah, for some weird reason. I mean, there's a couple of shots here and there where it doesn't have it and it looks all the better for it, but there's this weird glow to the image and it makes everything look really plasticky yeah. and fake. Even things that aren't fake It makes look... on-location footage yeah. really yeah. like the poorest studio lighting you've ever seen. Yeah, and I'm not sure they're just trying to gloss over all the unfinished CGI and things and then try and make it join yeah. together, but it sticks out like a sore thumb and it really distracts and it really takes you out of yeah. the film because it's just, it makes the film feel so like artificial and uninvolving and there's no grit to anything. That's right, yeah. And I would say that with the 4K versions that I've seen recently, they've done their best to essentially try and take the films a backward step in terms of that glow that's on everything. One of the things that a lot of people have picked up on with Battle of the Five Armies, especially, is that, holy shit, I can see the sky. There are clouds moving. <laughs> Originally, everything was so blown out that everybody yeah. was just had this kind of, like, Photoshop glean to them. It reminds me of what, um, you know, when you see people that have those Snapchat filters on yeah. now? Yeah. Everybody looks like that, yeah. especially Legolas, but everybody looks like that. <laughs> Oh, they've done something weird to Legolas anyway, but yeah, Legolas's bloated corpse. <laughs> what happened there? Oh, I, I need know. to go into that as well. But uh, they have t certainly taken a step back from that. There are still some scenes that suffer. For example, when the uh, the survivors from the Lake Town uh, massacre onslaught, when they arrive on shore, all of those scenes still look really blown out. I think that's just an issue that they never overcome. But for large portions of the rest of the film, it looks more like it should look. But even so, it's still like, it doesn't paper over the issues that I have with, with, with these films. It just looks like a, a better version of what's already there, really. Mm. But, but yeah, let's let's go into Legolas. Let's talk about Lego, <laughs> Legolas's contribution to the story. The most essential character in the film series. <laughs> for the fans. For the fans. For, for the fans. For the fans. Whoever they are. No, thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Yeah, he looks really fucking strange in this film oh, as yeah. well. And they're really trying to hide that he's like 60 years old. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It reminds me of the fucking, the Irishman. Yeah, and also like the um, the contact lenses are not right. Like they're completely different to how they were yeah. in the original. And, and also I noticed there's a few shots where I think they've forgotten to put his contacts in. Because it's CGI. And CGI'd him up. Whereas in The Lord of the Rings, there were also scenes where they didn't have his contacts in, but they just left it as it was. And it looked all yeah. the better who's for it. Because no one really cares. Who cares? I'm pretty sure there's, there's a scene with Legolas at the side of that lake where yes. his eyes are That's entirely CGI in that scene. And uh, it looks horrendous. I watched it with my wife and she said straight away, oh my God, what's happened to Orlando Bloom? Yeah. It looks like he's had a, a, like a botched facelift. Yeah. But I think what's happened is they've tried to like digitally de-age him but fucked it they up. They do that throughout the, the entire series. Yeah. And I remembered watching it when it first came out and thinking, no, oh, Legolas looks a bit weird, but nah, oh well. And then I put on Fellowship straight afterwards and went, oh my God, <laughs> Legolas looks completely different. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they've tried that with all the legacy characters as well and it just doesn't look right. 
Yeah, I mean, poor Ian Holm as well. He, um, yeah. I, I hate to say this, he feels like the ventriloquist dummy of Ian Holm, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. And what's going on with his wig? It's like they've given him some sort of like trendy haircut. As a... <laughs> I feel like he's got a lot of clips behind his head yeah. as well that's just kind of like pulling his skin back. Bit weird. I know, yeah. It's really sad because I love yeah. Ian Holm and he wasn't yeah. healthy no. when they were making this film. No. So I'm glad, I'm glad he's there. But it certainly takes a, a certain suspension of one's disbelief in yeah. order to uh, to believe it's the same, the, yeah. the same age character. He looks a, a little bit more like that gross monster version of him that, that, <laughs> that pops out in Fellowship. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Andy here. I just want to let you all know that we have a brand new show coming out next week called Bargain Binners. In each show, we'll be joined by Aidan Belazar and we'll be discussing the films that lurk at the bottom of the cinematic barrel. But there's just one catch. We must have purchased that film for less than one British pound. Bargain Binners will be released on alternate weeks with Popcorn Digest starting from Friday the 12th of February. We hope to see you all there as we promise it's going to be a lot of fun. And now, back to Popcorn Digest. <laughs> You know what one of my real bugbears is for this film as well, uh, Battle of the Five Armies specifically, is that it robs Desolation of Smog of its best ending. <laughs> the whole beginning yeah. of this film is just the final act, the final moments of Desolation of Smog, what should have been in place of the entire, the furnacing scene, the, the gold smelting factory. Yeah. That was all made on the fly because they had to move over the 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 actual destruction of Lake Town onto the beginning of the third film. Mm. And Peter Jackson even says in the documentary, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple of quotes, actually. One of the things that he says is, uh, because we went to three movies, we had to expand on a few things and resolve storylines in a whole different way, which makes me think, well, if you had to do that, why do it, to be, <laughs> to be honest? Yeah. But also, he speaks about this um, this opening as being like the Indiana Jones opening. It's almost like a prologue before the film begins, a pre-adventure. Because it doesn't really play into the rest of the film. And it feels like, honestly, they've just simply robbed Desolation of Smog of its best ending. Because it makes more emotional sense that all of these payoffs come in Desolation of Smog. With these particular characters, with the Lake Town characters as well. And I feel like that is something that's really, uh, really damaged the film for me as well. Because especially watching the three in, on the build up to this one, I see issues in the first two. I see a lot of issues. But I think there's more to salvage in those films than there is at all to salvage in this one. And the best part of this film, the, the most emotional beat, especially with Bard and his son and the arrow and that kind of thing with Smog, that's a moment that works for me. And I feel like. It being here at the very beginning of this film means that it lands with such little emotional impact than if it would have been at the end of the second film. Yeah. Which is about those characters as well. It's problematic in of itself anyway, even as like an adaptation thing, because they purposely leave behind characters and build up the character of Bard and leave dwarves yeah. behind in the adaptation because in the book... Smaug fucks off from the mountain and goes and burns Lake Town, and they're just yeah, they're all sitting just hiding in a corridor, and, just... the, and then and then all of a sudden a fucking raven comes and basically just spouts the exposition. I mean, th this is a thing. I, I have to be very frank, and I think the book is 
really not that great. I really don't think it's written particularly well. It works fine <laughs> as a fable, but then if you're trying to make an adaptation of this thing, it's fucking yeah. difficult. It really is difficult. But at the same time, I'm like, how would you structure this if you were making this as yeah. film two with the stuff with Smaug and then you have the Lake and Town the thing and then the battle? I mean, to be honest, and this is the question I've, I've been asking myself, because obviously when you look at the disc two, the appendices for battle of the five armies, it's all about the battle. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's where this film falls apart. I actually genuinely think it's not without its faults, but the first hour and 15 minutes of this film kind of mm-hmm. works okay. Yes. And it's only when Dane appears, or Dane, whichever way you want to pronounce it, <laughs> it's when he appears over the hilltop, the whole film just starts to crumble and collapse yeah. in on itself. But I'm, I have to constantly ask my question because I go into so much detail over this battle and how they expand it and all this gubbins of this battle, which I'm pretty sure is studio mandated. Yeah. However much they try and cover it up, the studio obviously wanted a Helm's Deep or Pelennor Field style battle in their film. Yeah. And they've gone out of their way to try and make this battle, even though they haven't really got the planning and resources to do so. Yeah. I have to constantly question whether this battle was necessary at all, because if it wasn't that important to Tolkien, why do they need to do it? Because, yeah. like, why couldn't they do it Game of Thrones style and just have Bilbo miss the battle? Or, or if they were going to do a battle, just have it much yeah. briefer thing, because to be honest, they have this hour-long plus chunk of battle and it means yeah. very little to the story yeah um, and i mean as well because we go back with the characters like azog and bolg and stuff like that. i know that bolg has a place in the story azog doesn't mm-hmm. but bolg certainly does and we look at what they do with those characters as well which are uh, entirely wasted i would have much preferred if this would have ended with a confrontation much in the same way as fellowship of the ring that came down to you know like you have that that main Uruk Hai character from fellowship i forgot his name he was created for the fellowship uh, film that aragorn well, faces off against yeah yeah, yeah. lurts that's it lurts yeah. thank you yeah well, you have lurts and um and aragorn facing off in the forest i would have much preferred a conclusion in the same vein with Thorin and him. And I know that we get that. I know that they try and do that with the whole Ravenhill thing. Mm. But they, they kind of have to frame it with this hour-long mess of action that doesn't really make any sense or have any structure to it. It's just a lot of people clashing against each other uh, with a lot of like misplaced humour moments as well. I would have much preferred it to have just been like a fight in the woods. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, much in the same way that Fellowship ends. But yeah, I, I will say as well, I think that the strongest element of this film is that first hour with Thorin. Because I feel like it's the first film in the trilogy that gives Thorin something to do. And it's the part of the book as well where Thorin has something to do. He has a character change, a, a yeah. complete character shift, the moment that he, he comes into possession of the mountain. And that's represented in the book as well. I like that element of the film. Yeah, This is the most interesting version of Thorin as well, this whole arc. Mm. And because you have this big battle as well, the moment that he makes that decision to join the fight, you are, what, what are you, like halfway through the film? That yeah. means you've still got like an hour and 20 minutes of an unchanged character, a character with a completed arc. All that's left in front of you is fighting. Yeah, You need characters to be defined by the action, yeah. not outside of it. Yeah. That's that's the only reason to have action sequences. Yeah, and it's impacted the fact that, yeah, a lot of this isn't necessary, but also the fact that they really double down on all this CGI. I mean, they boast in the 
in the appendices that 25% of this film is entirely CGI <laughs> and 96% of it has a visual effect in it. Yeah. I'm just shaking my head at that stat because even like like even if you like boiled it down, got rid of most of the battle and had that final Thorin Azog fight it still would be bullshit because it's like you didn't even yeah. bother to go out into the snow to film this. No, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's that level where you shot the fight, the climax of your main character in this film. One, you did it all on green screen. You did the fight with both actors completely separately. They didn't even fight together. Mm-hmm. How do you expect the audience to find that compelling in any way, shape or form when it looks yeah. so fake and uninvolving and you're just abusing all these CGI artists and making them do things in a medium where this kind of stuff, it's not what it was built for. Yeah. No matter what they say, doing this kind of stuff, it's not there yet. And I don't think it ever really will be because you've still got, there's so many complexities that you can get rid of when you just go and actually shoot in a fucking... And the thing that really annoyed me is the fact that they keep making excuses Peter Jackson, I think he's just trying to like save face, but they keep trying to make an excuse that, oh, you can't get this kind of stuff in the real world. And it's like, they're having a fight on yeah. a glacier. Go to a fucking glacier and shoot the sequence. To be honest, they live in New Zealand, which is is, is like got yeah. all of the seasons happening at once in yeah. one environment. Yeah, You can find snow and ice in New Zealand. Yeah. And you know what? I've seen the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes documentary. I know at what lengths you're willing to go to in order to, to make something work for the film in terms of the environments that you're willing to travel to. I mean, you only have to look at that whole segment of the film in which they actually shot on an actual mountainside in fellowship of the ring for just one scene in which fucking frodo drops his his, his ring yeah and that's not a euphemism <laughs> <laughs> that's an entirely different lord of the rings film <laughs> um, yeah but yeah they, they like shot on a mountainside just for that scene so why are you not making those same decisions for this one? I have a feeling that it's time constraints and that type of thing and studio demands it's going to cost money. There are more like things like things that I look at now when I think about these films like risk assessments and insurance. The COVID has made me start to rethink yeah, these yeah. type of things, that decisions that go into uh, to making films. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I also think that even though they do boast about it on the documentary, I think each one ends with... Peter Jackson sat in a room days before the film <laughs> yeah. is due to be released Just with like, his head down in his hands like I'm really sorry guys you know like we've got I, you know I'm really sorry that we're in a position where we're finishing the film's days before and he like especially in Desolation he's really genuinely quite upset that it's come down to this that it's requiring yeah. his artist to crunch you know, like yeah. to work like these 20 hour days in order to make sure that the film is finished. In Desolation, especially, and the same thing happens for Battle of Five Armies, he views it as a failure on his behalf. I think that these films, specifically this one as well, have broken him in a way that he doesn't want to direct films anymore. No. He's quite happy making documentary films that he's been working yeah. on. Like, um, and, and he's doing a, a fucking grand job at it mm. by the looks of things yeah, yeah. as well. It's certainly where his passions lie. Yeah. I think we may have seen the last of Peter Jackson, the uh, feature film director. He could do another small film as long as it's not like The Lovely Bones, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I mean, that oh even that was still like FX heavy and stuff. I'm talking like, you know, really small scale stuff. Yeah. I think The Lovely Bones really got lost in that kind of post-King Kong. In a way, I was thinking about it before, King Kong is like a a halfway house 
in between yes. the Lord of the Rings and uh, the Hobbit trilogy in terms of it is how it looks and the 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 cracks and the artifice and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it is. I tell you what, though, King Kong does make some cracking use of miniature sets. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like I say, it, it really, really is does. a halfway house of uh, sensibilities and and flaws and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I do have to be gen. Yeah, I do have to be honest. Where I actually sat through this film because I hadn't seen it for quite a long time, and then got through. Yeah, the first hour or so. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's not actually that bad. It's all right, actually. Um, yeah. It's working for me. It's not great. It's got a couple of issues. I think the visuals look horrible, but like on a storytelling front, it's, it's doing all right. There's a couple of things that I could do without. Like, yeah. there's a, you know, like it's like we we're saying before, like the ring wraith stuff's a bit gimmicky and having yeah. Gladriel there and stuff. It's a bit like, Ugh. it's ticking a box. Obviously, the Sauron bit's the best bit of that. Yeah. And, um, and obviously, the big elephant. Well, the other, the the other of the fifty elephants. How many room, elephants are oh, in this there's, room? There's, there's many. There's many. <laughs> but the other one we haven't talked about at all is uh, Alfred, who is the oh, Jar Jar. He was the Jar Jar Binks of the Hobbit trilogy. Well, the Jar Jar Binks of Middle Earth. I mean, I remembered when the first film came out and everybody thought that particular dwarf, I forgot his name, but I see him in loads of UK adverts now. Um, but the young dwarf, everybody was like, that's the Jar Jar Binks character. <laughs> we had not seen Alfred yet. Oh yeah. my fucking word, is he? Yeah. I feel sorry for the actor, to be honest, because... Yeah, Ryan Gage. Yeah, Ryan Gage. He's been written as a pantomime villain and he's playing it up to that. But every time he's on screen, I'm just, I kind of cringe inside myself. Mm. I cringe so much, I almost like absorb myself up my own arsehole. <laughs> it's just, it's like cringeception. Mm. No scene that he is in works for me at all. But you've just described the films for me in terms of the way that you viewed the first hour of Battle of Five Armies is watching, because I watched all three of them back. That's how I watched the first two films. I was like, you know what? I think if the films had been much like the first two are, with a little bit of tinkering, they would have been fine. They wouldn't have been masterpiece or great, but they would have been what we would comfortably call a fine series of films. And even, as you say, in terms of the what's happening on a character level with Thorin for that first hour of the film as well, yeah, that's fine as well. It's just that halfway through that film, they clearly run out of material. And it just... Yeah. I, I, I just feel, by the time it ends, I'm just so apathetic. I can say that, but I'd say even in those first two films... There's a real lack of forward momentum. Oh, yeah. Because they're so episodic, they really should have been condensed down. Because I remember, I think when, um, yeah, Smaug is the only film I saw multiple times at the cinema. And I remember, I think even on the second or third viewing, I was starting to go, oh, God. God, this is Still hard got going. an hour left. <laughs> yeah, because it gets really dull at times because they stretch sequences beyond... Like that whole Mirkwood sequence with the spiders. And I'm like, this is going on for so fucking long. It goes on even longer in the extended edition. Yeah. They have a whole crossing of the bridge section that just like, oh, it is a slog. And it just really bores me. It really does. Like you're saying with the approach to how you adapt these things, really, they should have just took the best of what was on offer in terms yeah. of their journey and and made a... Uh, a bumper compendium, like all the best. They should have Tom bombarded all it. Yeah, they really should have done that. That's the thing. I think with these films, because of the uh, because of the way that the book is written, in that everything is very breezy. Whereas with Lord of the Rings, the way that Tolkien approaches the story is very. Um, he he's wrapped up in the presentation of this world. He describes everything. If somebody sits at a stool, you're going to know the person that made that stool and the shop of his <laughs> maiden. And he's 
he gets very breezy when it comes to the days that pass and the traveling and that type of thing. But when it comes to certain environments, he's very wrapped up in making sure that you have an understanding of what this looks like, you know, the, the history of this world. And he's very wrapped up in the history side of things. With The Hobbit, though, he kind of just kind of, like floats over everything. I think, personally, I mean, this is just my opinion. I think the way forward is to make two films, and that is to elaborate on things like Bulg. Because that that is a character as well that doesn't feel like he's a uh, he he's introduced in like the last few pages as like a, a very like an afterthought kind of thing, um, as being like one of the leaders of the five armies that approaches. That's something that clearly needed to be elaborated on. I don't think we needed Azog there and his no. whole inclusion in this world as well. I mean, when this film was supposed to be two films as well, and it was supposed to end with the barrel riding chase sequence. In the uh, trailers the for trailer. Desolate. I clearly remember that. It is Azog yeah. that you see there. Bolg mm-hmm. isn't even a mention. I don't even think at one point they would even go into have Bolg in the film. It was just going no. to be Azog. Mm. And then it was when they split it into three, they had to go back and rethink that. And then they ended up with the clusterfuck of an idea of actually having Azog and Bolg. Yeah. Because I remembered when they introduced him in Desolation, because everybody always said, oh my God, that, that one CGI orc was really bad, wasn't he? I mean, that one that they made in about six weeks' time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Desolation starts, and, and it's like, oh shit, there's another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every scene that Bolg is in was clearly a scene that was supposed to be Azog. Yeah. Because he just disappears from the films for a while. Yeah. Oh my God, I've, I've, I've gone down a rabbit hole again. But yeah, I think the way forward is two films... And to just simply elaborate on the the best elements of the Hobbit yeah. and to cut the chaff. Yeah. And that even means some of the dwarves, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. Because, yeah, there's just so much preamble where you just get to the end of that first film and you just go, what was the actual purpose of that film? Yeah. It didn't really have a proper beginning, middle and end. They try and tack on that kind of Thorin accepting Bilbo thing, which actually yeah. causes its own problems because, again, they have 100%. nowhere to go in the in the second and third movies. Yeah, with that. that would I mean, be they the strongest do... film for me just for that one element for me because it has a genuine character arc, but that should have been really the series arc. Yeah, it's, it's tricky anyway because even if you split it into two films and and had it where they originally ended at the, uh, the, barrel, the end of the barrel sequence, h- how would you have ended that? with the shadow of the bard how would that have been a good ending i already feel like the barrel sequence oh, barrel is, an, is, a, is uh, fucking horrendous anyways so. well yeah it's a fight sequence that's already been elaborated on and it's one of my least like other than the battle itself of the five armies if i look at the first two films entirely i think the barrel sequence is my least favorite action sequence in the uh in the series yeah and it's Go, also gopro gopro cameras oh. <laughs> sponsored by gopro oh my god <laughs> Talk about, like, whiplash. <laughs> and especially, I mean, now that it's they've upgraded it to 4K, I I would r- sign a petition to have those shots taken out Removed. entirely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still think now, how do you end that film at that point? Because I don't think the uh, barrel riding sequence is exciting enough of an ending for a film. Um, so I, I wonder where they would go with that. But it's, it's strange in a way, because, like, in some respect, that first hour of battle is actually much stronger than some of the other stuff in the other films. If it weren't for the battle itself, it would have actually been stronger than, say, even something like the second half of Unexpected Journey and and Mm. much of Smaug, because it it actually had some genuine character purpose. And and I think this was an issue as well, the fact that you have the character of Bard, who in the book just suddenly appears, 
and then he's yes. in it for a bit and then just disappears and that's yeah. it even though he actually has a quite an important part in the story in terms of like the negotiation uh for yeah. the people of lake town so obviously yeah you're gonna have to like elaborate on that and build that character up in order to justify his inclusion and be the one that kills the dragon otherwise you just ended up with a set piece which doesn't involve any main characters but because they had to split those bits up you've got a character of bard in the second film that doesn't really have much purpose yeah in that particular film he's only there so they can because they've obviously lopped off act three or you know the climax of of that second film by moving it to film three. Yeah. It really upends everything in terms of the character work. For me personally, I, I remember saying this at the time as well, when I had first seen the film. The thing that frustrates me most about Battle of the Five Armies is, I know that for you, that you have particular issues with an unexpected journey, and you did far before mm. the five Battle of Five Armies came out. But for me, um, an unexpected journey was always the stronger one because on a character level, it had a genuine arc at its centre. And I, I think the thing that frustrates me about Battle of Five Armies is it's the only other part of this series, and I wouldn't even say entire film, for half of it, it's the only one, other one that has an arc in it. Desolation of Smog has some very strong scenes in it, uh, particularly when Bilbo and um, Smog are speaking to each other. Um, that whole segment works fine for me. Uh, the parts that I would say build on the book itself are some strong elements, but no character really encounters anything of a change during that film. Like, there's nobody that ends a different way than when they began. And mm. perhaps that could have been Bard. If they had had that, you know, fire and water scene at the end of that film, they could have had the, well, the, the person that has the arc in that film is Bard. He he goes from being somebody that's kind of outcast and downtrodden in this environment. Well, he's not outcast, I guess. He's, he's a man of the people, the working class in this environment. And then by the end of it, he's become something of a leader. Mm. And it's like, okay. That, that's an arc, but because they split it over the two films, that's that's kind of lost. But yeah, Battle of the Five Armies is the only one, other than An Unexpected Journey, that has a complete character arc in it with Thorin. Nobody else changes, but just Thorin. <laughs> you know, in a way, I should be saying that this is the strongest film for that. Mm. Uh, but because it kind of like botches everything else when the actual fighting begins and all of the confrontation starts and it just becomes a... A bit of a mess, and also an R-rated mess at that as well, because yeah. let's not forget that this is the only film in the series that features an R rating or a 15 rating, as we would say over here, uh, due to some very uh, very graphic decapitations. Mm. What is it? What is it with the decapitations in these films? I get the feeling, you know, like when you try, like, <laughs> they've tried to come up with some very creative deaths for orcs, but they seem to have settled very quickly on just decapitating them. And it reminds me of... Um, that type of that type of thing that you do when you're trying to bolster out an essay, so you just use the thesaurus to to say the same thing as many times as you can, <laughs> you yeah. know. And this feels like how many how many ways can you decapitate an orc? The battle itself is Middle Earth at its most schlocky, at its most PS2. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd go, yeah, I'll talk about that in a bit with the whole Legolas thing, but uh, yeah, for those that had issue with Legolas in uh, t the Two Towers and Return of the King, mm. hold on to your hats. Yeah, I don't understand why they doubled down on that because that was one of the biggest criticisms of those films. Yeah, and they seem to think that people liked that, and I don't understand why because I haven't met a single person who liked that part of. Uh, you know, especially the surfing on the elephant. Yeah. Easily the weakest part of that film. <laughs> and they keep going back to it as like oh, a yeah, marketing yeah. thing, even yeah, though yeah. I think 
it's because Orlando Bloom was a sex symbol at the time. Yeah. And because he was a sex symbol, they wanted more cool things for him to do. Mm-hmm. Or cool. Mm. K-E-W-L. <laughs> cool. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> but the thing is, Orlando Bloom's not a sex symbol anymore. Don't give him anything to do. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> We don't need him in this film. I like no. that he, he appears. If you're going to go to the the elves of Mirkwood, yeah, let's have him appear for a for a scene or so. You know, let's establish him. But he's another character that I feel like struggles to justify his place in this world as well. To be honest, and also there's I, I feel like there's some weird story thing that they forgot about in the splitting of this story into two films. That I've always like gone, huh? Because at the end of Smaug, he's clearly racing off to find Bulg. Yes. And then at the beginning of this film, he's suddenly back with the Lake Town people and that whole line of inquiry is just gone. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Did, did someone forget about that part? Like, Because I thought in the next film, when we catch up with them, he'll have, uh, he'll have been tracking Bulg and following them yes. and finding out what's going on with them and that'll be his part in the story and it's not. I honestly feel like that was what it was supposed to be that that's how we tracked Bulg to the Gundabad fortress. Yeah, yeah. That was it and then it was like they had to tack on Tariel. We have to do this love triangle. Yeah, exactly. We have to do the love triangle so he has to go back, meet up with Tariel who is in love with the character that she's only met for three scenes prior <laughs> and... <laughs> And then they're going to travel to Gundabad in order to have this uh, this revelation that there's a whole army on its way. Mm-hmm. We should just be following Legolas on his own. You don't need dialogue scenes or anything like that. You need the the quiet and silent Legolas that we know mm-hmm. from Fellowship as well, tracking. I would like to see that because mm. we, we get that as well, that kind of trite and corny mother subplot as well mm. that's introduced at the death yeah which it feels like it has just been introduced for this film in particular yeah one of the last things that i want to get into really with this is and i'm i'm going to go on a positive and that is that an actor that i quite like in this film and a character that i quite like in this film and that i think has been elaborated on in mostly the right way is bard and luke evans and I like what they do with him in this film. I, I find myself... I didn't like Luke Evans when I first started to see him in films. I always thought he was quite wooden. But I've taken to his presentation of Bard because it does feel rather fitting to the version that's presented in the book as well. But they've elaborated on it in the right way as well by including a family and making him like the voice of the working class in this lake town. And I like what they do with him. However... I do feel like his best scene is one that's left on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. And in the appendices, they have this whole section that's dedicated to the scene about Bilbo with his um, his acorn. Like they deal with it in the making of with such reverence and such like respect. They're like, this is a great scene, and they score it with with real music as well. And I get the feeling that nobody involved in this production wanted to lose that scene. No. It's come from another place because the way that they talk about it, Bilbo taking this acorn that he stole from Bjorn and planting it in Dale as if in all of this bloodshed, something beautiful will finally grow. That is a real beautiful moment. And they cut it out for reasons that they never actually say. No. Just really because they had to. And then they say, oh, Bilbo planted it when he got back to the Shire. Mm. We never see that whole subplot come full circle, but it seems like a real poignant moment in Bard's development and Bilbo's development. It's very odd that it's not in the extended version either. Yeah. It really is like them saying, oh, we cut out the heart of the movie, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. You know, we had to do it. 
And you can tell that it was there because you have obviously you have the first part of it in the film. And then when you get to the end credits, when you get the little drawings of the characters, it's fucking Bilbo with that acorn. And it's like, <laughs> oh, Jesus, what has gone on in this film? Like, yeah, the they fucked it. Like, who's responsible, like, for messing this up? Because there's that other thing as well, like, and it's it's got to be something to do with with how the films have been perceived because it's that whole gay angle that they wanted to get rid of and, and didn't want people to mention because obviously you have all those things with, you know, Sam and Frodo in uh, Lord oh, yeah. of the Rings. And like, there's that thing where the fact that they have Thorin's death followed by Tauriel's lament of uh, Kili straight after, which completely undermines the impact of Thorin's death. And it's all so they can have a case of the not gays in a yeah. way really and that's that's all it's there for yeah and to be honest it's like with lord of the rings i really appreciate that they never went down that road of having it be like the case of the not gays that they trusted that our audience are going to understand that this is like a, a very strong platonic love between two hobbits and you know what if they do look any further into it then they can do that's absolutely fine as well that's completely warranted and it's there if you want to look into it any further like, with this film, they seem so fucking scared that people might interpret these two characters as being gays. Oh, you can't have a man cry about the death of another man. <laughs> Ew, gay. So yeah. they have to have that scene with, you know, how can it hurt so much? Because it was real. <laughs> Which is more than can be said to the background and the scenery and, and you. Everything you hear is not real. It's all CGI. All of Can it. you imagine delivering that line in that environment <laughs> because it was real? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we still haven't talked about fucking Legolas as Rayman. <laughs> He's doing his whole platform video game thing going on there. Like, I understand oh. what you said now. You said Rayman. I thought yeah. you said, like, Rayman the platform video game. I thought yeah. you said Rain Man. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> well, fair enough, I get it. Yeah. But... That is, this film's equivalent of the parachuting Wartsky thing in Die Another Day. It's, it's, yes, it's it is. that level of badness. Yeah. I mean, it's probably slightly better done in terms of the visual effects, but in terms of whatever else it's doing with gravity and stretching suspension of belief and everything, it's, uh, it's not good. Um, and of all the characters to give the moment to as well, the dispatching of Bulk, why Legolas? I mean, no if you're going to introduce Tariel as well mm. as this new character... It needs to be her. It 100% needs to be her. And number two as well, it kind of makes her portrayal in this film really quite offensive and yeah. backdated. Yeah. Because I understand where the need has come from to at least include some sort of like a feminine voice in this pack of characters. that, As long as they feel part of this world, please do. I'm very much of that kind of viewpoint. But they introduced Tariel and they made such a big deal about her having a feminine presence in this movie. But the, all she comes to do is have a love triangle with a character that she barely interacts with. <laughs> and two, is a complete damsel in distress, there to be in trouble for Legolas to save her whenever is necessary. Mm -hmm. And it's completely undermining for and demeaning as well, especially for Evangeline Lilly. For that character, it feels so backdated and offensive and I wonder where that has come from. I honestly do, because I can't think that anybody making that film would have thought that that was the right way to go with that character. Yeah. I would have preferred her to, like, almost like a reversal of the trope that we see. We normally see the trope of the, the, the female love interest being killed as a motivation for the male character to go on and 
overcome this great evil or whatever villain they're facing. Like, why not do a spin on that and have it the other way around, that it's the female that takes the death of, of her loved one and kills Bolg, the yeah. villain. It would have been still very cliche, but it would have gave her character at least some semblance of meaning. Yeah, because yeah, her inclusion is... I mean, both those characters' inclusion is in it ends up being entirely superfluous to the plot. Yes. When it actually needn't have been, they could have made it work. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether it's because, I mean, they've yet to be on Earth, but I imagine there's more than one Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah. In the uh, Hollywood film industry, and um, there, there's uh, probably several sitting in the in the Warner Brothers boardroom. So, I don't know. Oh, well, we've just had that big revelation with... Oh, Neil Marshall's current girlfriend, Charlotte, um, oh, forgot her name. But one of the, the heads of Warner Brothers has had to step down because of their relationship with uh, oh dear. with an, yeah. a, an actress that they had tried to get in, so. involved in a lot of different films. And seems that there's a lot of this kind of thing that happens behind the scene that's starting to come to light now. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you start hearing, like, you, when you start getting to that point where the, this whole film was built on that, change in labor laws yeah in the new zealand film industry you know that something really bad's going on behind in the scenes in this yeah. in the the making of these films because that is shady things go that's pretty shady and yeah it, it kind of overshadows everything mm. going on with, with with these films yeah because i think even if they had been of the best quality that they could be if they're still made on a foundation of shit that's still going to tarnish them forever. Yeah, I, I think that the mistreatment of New Zealand and the mistreatment of the unions in New Zealand as well by Warner Brothers and the studios involved, regardless of the quality of The Hobbit, that is something to be critical of. That is something that will tarnish these films forever as well. And especially from the uh, the, the standpoint of the, uh, you know New Zealanders, from, from the Kiwis that do watch this film, they're going to, to view it through that point of view of it being... Uh, not just a film, but a symbol of the corruption within their environment, their working environment as well. Yeah. So that's always going to tarnish these films, no matter what. And yeah, and the fact that it's that you know it's seeped into the original yeah. films as well. That like the the whole notion of Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings and everything is kind of it's really been tarnished mm. in New Zealand itself. Uh, you know, there's that thing where Tom Augustine from Birth Movies Death goes says, you know, it kind of fucked us. So yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. It's it's just the clouds have burst and um, the clouds have burst indeed. Yeah. So I mean, I've got to say as well before we uh, move on to the stats and facts. Uh, one question that I want to ask you is, um, how do you feel currently about the Amazon billion dollar TV series that's currently in uh, in the making at the moment? Five series have been guaranteed, and it's going to cost in all. A billion dollars, but it did cost Amazon two hundred million to buy the rights. Mm -hmm. So, what, what's your opinion? How are you feeling about that? Do you care? Couldn't care less. Because <laughs> if I want to watch Lord of the Rings, I'll go and watch Lord of the Rings. Thank you very much. Yeah. And all it's going to be is just more of the same, but not as good. So, what's the actual point? I, I don't see. I'm hoping that the the divorcing of itself from the current timeline and taking it so many thousands of years before back to the Numenor, the second age of Middle-earth, I'm hoping that that will provide it with some space to be its own thing because I am all about any further exploration of Middle-earth being its own thing. I have a feeling that we're going to get this kind of like Star Warsification 
where everything feels like it's uh, very confined to one particular time frame and environment, and you're just running through those environments time and time again. I'm hoping that it's different. I'm hoping that it's a new interpretation of the world, and I'm still hopeful that we would see that. And I will say there's definitely space. There's plenty of stories in Tolkien's world other than the, the, the popular ones, and if they can get the rights for the likes of the Silmarillion and... Um, and I mean, I've got the, the the series here about you know uh, Beren and Luthien, the fall of Gondolin, the children of Huron. There's loads of other stories that they can tell. Again, I just want it to have its own identity and be its own thing. Whether or not it is, we'll we'll see. It kind of really just depends on whether the people in charge have that level of imagination or whether they just want to play it safe and do exactly mm-hmm. the same thing over again and then tie it back to things that we know and recognize. Yeah. Yeah, right now I'm just not very enthusiastic about it at all. I'm open to being enthusiastic about it. That's what I will say. I'm I'm open to the idea of being excited about Middle-earth again. But for now, I'll, I'll always have Lord of the Rings. I still like the first two Hobbit films. I like them. I don't love them. They're fine for me, uh, despite some real deep flaws. Um, I find them quite watchable. It's only battle that really kind of just crushes me a little bit. And I feel like I've had enough of, of that version of Middle-earth now. I'm ready for something new. But I think when you're pumping that much money into any kind of project, when you're saying from the offset that this is going to be a billion-dollar franchise, like this thing's going to have a billion-dollar budget, that automatically sets off alarm bells in my head that are saying, Mm. well, that means that there's going to be some creative stifling as well. Like There's going to be some creative narrowing down of, of what they want this to be, and it's going to be something that they can market. And they know that they can market the old Middle Earth. So, who knows? I was just thinking about it before when we mentioned the Antariel and things were like, you definitely know where the sheen's been taken off because I still remember that fucking awful scene in Smaug where she's like trying to heal Killy and they have that oh, whole white God. light sequence and it looks just looks like she's humping him and it's like, this looks just like, it just looks like <laughs> elf sex and I just couldn't help like sniggering. And they do similar yeah. things like that in the original book I don't know whether because it was new and they and the context was there, it didn't look so goofy and silly. I think there's a there's a degree of suspension as well. Like it's already worked on you in terms like if if you already feel like you're uh, you've bought into this particular world subconsciously, you're going to forgive it some elements. Whereas you can't help but look at these things out of context in in the Hobbit films because you don't buy into the world in the same way. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So. Um, do you have anything further to add about The Hobbit, or shall we move over to the stats and facts? I mean, we could go on and on and on here. I mean, it, it, yet again, <laughs> this is another film where we've barely mentioned the film. Yeah, yeah, it really is. We've we've talked around the film for the entire time. We've not really gotten yeah. into it. Because the thing is, again, like I, I, I would defend that first hour and, and 15 minutes because there is some good stuff in there. Yeah. You know, there is some bad stuff in there. But, you know, on the whole, I th- it was going in a positive direction. That battle is so fucking terrible. And if you watch the second disc of the appendices where they really go to town in telling you about all the detail in this battle, and I just have to go, oh, God, all that wasted time and talent and, God, uh, working on this battle for whatever, how long, and it doesn't make any impact on me whatsoever. And it's just a CGI shit show that lacks any kind of impact, and it's all very weightless and just gimmicky and a mess to me it does feel like a video game you mentioned rayman before but it does feel very video gamey especially in today's current climate of like uh, what you can achieve through video games now and it's like 
to be honest. You change the camera angles a little bit. You <laughs> fix a camera to someone's shoulder. I'm looking at a video game now. And uh, that that's how that whole whole section feels to me as well. I mean, there's, there's whole that things that we haven't gotten chariot. into, like Bill, Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly, yeah. Which I, I understand why they've had to do what they've done with that. But even so, every time he's on screen, Dane is a complete distraction, and he's supposed to be a you know fully fledged character, and you just can't buy yeah. it because it's. I mean, I understand the the respect that Peter Jackson will have had for Billy Connolly, and I, I totally get that. But I, I think he I think he should have made the decision to recast recast yeah if he wasn't well enough to do it because it doesn't work no and it's to the detriment of the film. And I love the big yin as well. He's uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I and I get why that decision's been made is because, like you say, the respect of saying, well, we will find a way to work around this, but it does damage the film. It does mm. really like every time that character's on screen, it just jars you completely out because you're not yeah. looking. Yeah, you're not looking at a character anymore. You're looking at it's like that. Fucking, it's like well, anything they try and do with the Star Wars universe where they try and bring back characters or de-age them. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like waxy faced Luke oh, Skywalker. I want to do a whole episode about the Mandalorian. We need to talk about Luke. We do. <laughs> I'm sorry, people who appreciated that, but you've been had. You yeah. are going down a rabbit hole of nostalgia filled shit. Yeah. And um, it's not good. It really isn't good. I was on board for a large majority of The Mandalorian season two. And there's a particular episode, the one that's previous to that episode, I was like, Right, so the day that they released this um, Disney Expo thing where they released all of the... Like, we're making 15 billion Star Wars series. Uh, and I was like, oh my no. fucking God, I'm bored already. I'm I'm exhausted mm. just reading the list of Star Wars projects that are coming out. And then the day after, they released one of the best episodes of The Mandalorian that seemed to be based on The Wages of Fear or Sorcerer. And I was like, wow, what a fucking great episode. It's about two guys taking a truck across a very dangerous environment that could blow up at any moment that's <laughs> a great episode and mm. then they followed it up with the most it's it's essentially the star wars equivalent of clickbait yeah. you know it's it's so clickbaity it's just there to generate artificial buzz let's include luke skywalker in this and it once more it, it kind of brought it all crashing back down to me it's like no matter how far away or how creative they're going to try and push this they're always going to have to try and tie themselves back down to the established law. Mm. The more any series does that, the less interested in it I become. And that certainly damaged The Mandalorian Season 2 for me, and I really was quite on board for it up until that point. The, the way that they're going, there the could be a guy, an alien in the background picking his nose and they make a series about <laughs> him. You know, that's, that's, how, that's the level of ridiculousness. He's still waiting for that salacious crumb. Oh, I'm waiting for that salacious crumb. I mean, I'm, I'm, we joke. I'm waiting for it to be like some sort of like salacious crumb talk show or something, and he just laughs at every single question. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you know what the thing is, right? We talked about this previously on our, on a Star Wars episode, and one of the things that I said in relation to that is, I want to see a TV show about Dexter Jetster and his Kathy, <laughs> and then, and then. <laughs> There was a, a TV show that they were working on years ago called Star Wars Detours. Yeah. And it was famously one of those shows that's completely fully finished and they never released it. Mm. And then the first episode leaked and it's all about Dexter Jetster and his cafe. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. It's about, it's about somebody sticking up Dexter Jetster's cafe. 
I couldn't believe it. I was like, it's it's actually come full circle. We've got yeah. a Dexter Jetster TV show. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's the thing with yeah. the, with that Lord of the Rings TV show. It's only a matter of time before they uh, they they give Alfred his own spin off series. <laughs> And it turns out that he survived his dealing with the uh, being swallowed by the uh, was it the troll? Yeah, he crawled out of its arsehole. <laughs> he, craw- he, tr- <laughs> he crawled out of the troll's arsehole. <laughs> I mean that, that that that's the thing as well that I think we we haven't mentioned the fact that yes the um, the theatrical version of Battle wasn't great, but it was actually the extended version that really broke us. Yes, because yeah, yeah. there's certain things that they added back into the film which increased the ridiculousness and the schlockiness of it because yeah there's more decapitations you've got that alfred death sequence and then you've got the other thing we haven't mentioned which is the fucking chariot pulled by the goats of course and and that's where the r rating came from as well was the chariot chase sequence yeah i remembered when the battle of five armies came out and when i was reviewing it for a website or a forum or somewhere i gave it like a six out of ten which I still feel is a quite accurate representation for the theatrical version of the film. I still think it's an apathetic 6 out of 10 that I would give it, but I was still quite quietly optimistic that the extended edition would bring things full circle and justify the inclusion of of certain elements. Like I would thought that it was going to make more of the inclusion of uh, characters that felt like diversions in previous films, like Bjorn and that type of thing. Uh, Bayorn, I should say, not Bjorn. And then when the final thing came out... <laughs> Redagast. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. And when it came out, it just it made the whole thing worse. That was the one that broke me. That truly broke me. And it is the version that we've watched as well for this episode today is the extended edition. Uh, but I think anybody that watched the theatrical would be able to follow exactly what we're talking about as well. Mm. And I do agree with you. I think that I can't overlook the fact that the, the, the strongest element is that that first hour of this film, the first hour and 15 minutes before things really kick off, the the bargaining with Thorin as well over his gold, and you have him dealing with he, he's gone full Austin Powers gold member. <laughs> <laughs> you have that whole element of the film. That That's still its strongest moment i know that peter jackson said that he wanted it to feel like silence of the lambs as well like uh with clarice Starlin going to visit um anthony hopkins in prison yeah he did mention it he said he's gonna cut it like a thriller like silence of the lambs is what he said in the pre-release for this film and uh i i can I, you know what for the first time watching it this time i could see it and it's it's the talking down the hole is what he means <laughs> <laughs> and i don't that's again that's not sexual um <laughs> But whenever, um, whenever Bard comes to talk to Thorin, that's I think that's what he's referring to, and you have this this madman on the other side of the class essentially. But I like all that element. But yeah, once the fighting begins, it just becomes so detached from everything, and the extended edition only seems to have added to those woes. Yeah, I mean, also it's a testament that some of the most effective sequences in the film are the simplest like that talking through the hole and that simple sequence where Gandalf and Bilbo are sitting beside each other and he starts smoking his pipe and just little things like that. And and yeah, the the bit, the thing with the acorn and stuff, which they should have left the other half of that in and everything like, those are the bits that work. I just generally get the feeling like whether it was a studio or even a bit of hubris on the filmmaker's part or something. I think that's definitely a part of it as well. Yeah. I just feel like they've really genuinely missed the point of why people liked 
the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They've kind of doubled down on some of the weaker elements of the, of that trilogy actually. Yeah. Yeah, and I just feel like it's a it's a it's a just a tornado of all these elements that have come and pretty much just ravaged what could have been something that was actually would have been just as worthy as if not as grand, it could have been just as charming as the original films. And it, it really isn't. It feels very hollow. I think the point is that they should have never have tried to match the Lord of the Rings in terms of epic scale. Mm. And I think they set out with the idea that they wouldn't. But as the film series went on, the demand came down that they had to match like Helm's Deep or like we yeah. say, Pelennor Fields. And I also think that for a film series called The Hobbit as well, it does lose its main character, and this yeah. one certainly does. Uh, the first hour is quite strong as well because Bilbo feels a part of that world. He's got something to do. He travels back and forth between Gandalf and Bard and, and those characters at the uh, at Dale, and uh, he has the Arkenstone as well, and he has a lot to do with Thorin. And from that point onwards, from that point that the, the battle begins, it's actually Bilbo that disappears from the plot entirely. Mm. And for a film that's named after him, this is the one that I think, from a certain point, has the least to do with him. It does come back with a very strong moment with him and the dying Thorin. But uh, yeah, I feel like... It's too late by then. Yeah, it's it's too late and it feels like a missed opportunity mm. by that point. To be honest, during the thick of that battle, everybody gets forgotten about... They're just so interested (laughs) in all the gimmicks that they can throw in and all the CGI bollocks. That should have been the name of this film. The Hobbit, Battle of the CGI Bollocks. Oh, and uh, Bard's Wagon. That is another one of my absolute worst sequences in the film. It's just so horrible. I will say as well, I don't like the trolls in this film. No. To be honest, I don't like much of anything in this. I don't like the dwarves riding the goats down the mountain or anything like that. No. It all feels very, as you say, very weightless and... And goofy. Yeah, goofy is definitely the word to use. Send in the goats. Send in the goats. Sending goatsy. And I think this is the thing as well. Like, that epitomizes for me all the things that are wrong with this film. But, like, it's Philippa Boynes' favorite line in this film. This is another thing that's wrong. Yeah. Because I was mentioning it to you last night about the the hubris, and there's something going on with Philippa Boynes that I can't quite put my finger on. Mm. I don't know what it is. She's become a bit of an asshole, and I really don't know because <laughs> she comes across really nice in the. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings appendices, but there's a certain arrogance about her in the uh, in the Hobbit appendices. You think she, she's like believed her own hype? Yeah, in a way, there's there's something there's something not quite right. Anyway, yeah, it's like she's become the world authority on Tolkien and and how to adapt Tolkien and yeah, and she's made a pretty horrendous adaptation of this Tolkien book. But <laughs> there's, I think there's many things that have gone wrong, many things that have gone off the boil in the interim period between both trilogies and. Uh, and yeah, this trilogy unfortunately has um, been the casualty of all those changes. And this film is where I think it's come to its ultimate head as well. Yeah, and like you say, not even the first half, but that second half is where it's all just come to one gross whitehead of a film. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the stats <laughs> and facts. <laughs> so, Battle of the Five Armies. It has a budget of well, I do believe that the budget that they released for this film was two hundred and fifty million because he said each one was going to be made for two hundred and fifty million a piece. But once you again, you start to factor in reshoots and the trouble production that it was. That budget inflates somewhat to somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. As mentioned, it's, it was filmed back to back with the other Hobbit films, so. Uh, that gives them some leeway. But the box office opening for this film was $54 million US. 
And uh, it did go on, though, to make $255 million overall at the US box office, which, although is a quite significant increase over its opening weekend, it's still, I think, the lowest a US playthrough of a uh, Lord of the Rings Middle Earth type film. Mm-hmm. I think that's the lowest gross of the lot, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And overall, the box office is $956 million worldwide. Um, I do believe I remember at the time that this film was released, uh, it was released in the same year as Interstellar. They did say that it would have made over a billion dollars had the exchange rate been in their favor, but that was a particularly bad year for the US dollar. However, even that said, yeah, I still think it's an you know an accurate decrease. It's the final Middle Earth film that Peter Jackson's going to make, so it was always going to make money. It it didn't crack the billion dollar that everybody thought it was going to the easy billion. Yeah, and and especially when like the year later you're getting films that are I would say are actually worse, like Jurassic World that are making one point yeah. five, one point yeah. six. If it was genuinely a good film and was yeah. the trilogy capper, it could have been making those kind of numbers easily. Yeah. I think people have just got bored and fed up by this point. Yeah. I, I know I was. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and, and me too. By that by that point, I was done. Before The Hobbit came out, I was chomping at the bit for, for more exploration of Middle Earth, and by the time it was finished, I was like, I'm kind of over, overdone with this now. And uh, just to give you an idea of the films that this was up against at the time that it was released, so you have The Hobbit opening at number one, and at number two, you have Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. <laughs> and number three, you have Annie. Yeah. Oh, shit, I forgot that they did a remake of Annie. Yeah. <laughs> it was the one with uh, Cameron Diaz and Jamie Foxx, wasn't it? Yeah. And then at number four, you have the Ridley Scott whitewashing epic, Exodus, Gods and White Guys. Mm. Uh, sorry, Gods and Kings. <laughs> and at number five, you have uh, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, Return of Jafar. and number six you have wild and uh number seven was big hero six number eight was top five okay (laughs) top five in the top ten and number nine was a film called pk and number ten was the penguins of madagascar in a christmas adventure (laughs) (laughs) a real iconic week oh dear (laughs) that's uh that's not the strongest week at all and then moving over to the uh critical review of this film so the rotten tomatoes score for this film is 59 percent, which is the lowest for peter jackson's middle earth films and it has a 6.30 out of 10 average rating and the consensus is um, though somewhat overwhelmed by its own spectacle the hobbit the battle of the five armies ends peter jackson's second middle earth trilogy on a reasonably satisfying note i i mean i disagree but I, I don't have the, the effort in me to... It's, to, it's a very much of a, yay. <laughs> it's <laughs> like tiny flag. It, it's trying its best to be positive, but it's kind of like still a kind of, I'm waving a tiny little flag for it. <laughs> it, it is. And uh, talking of the critics, I've uh, gone for James Dyer's review from Empire Magazine, and this is a resoundingly positive review. He gave it four out of five and said, it's a fitting conclusion to Jackson's prequel trilogy and a triumphant adieu to Middle-earth. Now complete, The Hobbit stands as a worthy successor to The Lord of the Rings, albeit one that never quite emerges from its shadow. Jackson has crafted a grand old tale to do Tolkien proud, and with a single simple bow in the final moments, one that offers a far cleaner send-off than Return of the King ever did? What? You've been smoking crack, my friend. <laughs> What's in that pipe? 
Yeah, he's been he's been smoking Gandalf's pipe for too long. Oi, not Oi. enough of that. <laughs> you know, I know he's gay and proud, but you don't have to say that about Ian McKellen. <laughs> oh dear. Oh my word. Anyway, so uh, the audience score for this film on Rotten Tomatoes is seventy four percent, which is uh, with a three point eight six out of five average rating, and the IMDb score is seven point four out of ten. And again, I think those are higher because it's a franchise film from a franchise that is still well regarded by a certain core audience it's much like the majority of star wars films are always going to get a certain rating depending despite the quality because there's a certain fandom there already inbuilt to push those ratings so i understand that but for me i'd be looking at more of like a six out of ten film i'd probably say five well the extended edition certainly yeah Okay, so I think now it's time really to draw our final thoughts on the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies. Um, so, Andy, any final thoughts that you want to put across to close the episode? What is your final standing for this film? I just think this is yet another example of having more content is not necessarily a great thing because really it just dilutes what the thing was when it first started. And very much like Star Wars, my interest has dwindled due to declining quality Mm -hmm. of content and i really hate using the word content Content. because it seems to be something that is used very liberally these days and it's not Mm -hmm. a good word to use when you're dealing with things that are um supposed to be artistic i mean you know there is a level of business there but it has to come down to the the art and creativity and that that's what really puts the bums on the seats Mm -hmm. when you get an imbalance of that that's when I just switch off because I really couldn't care less. And I, I, I think I genuinely think it really has damaged my appreciation of Lord of the Rings. I don't even think it's the time thing. I mean, uh, Jess has watched Lord of the Rings on several occasions when I've not actually been bothered to actually watch it with her. Yeah. So, yeah, it, th- these things do an awful lot of damage when mm-hmm. they're not right. Um, I used to argue against that when I was when I was younger. I used to argue against the idea that, but I, I think that now that I'm 30-something years mm. old and I've allowed certain films to settle with me for yeah. not just years but for decades, then I've started to realise that actually, yes, you can damage a film with a, like, with a bad sequel or a bad series of films or by overexposure. You can damage my appreciation of a good film and I've certainly found that with Star Wars and the way that I don't really have any... Um, any 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 desire to go back even to the original Star Wars films. I don't mm. feel that way with Lord of the Rings yet, but mm. it could get that way if they do go down that road with the uh, with the later series and yeah. we start to find ourselves just saturated by Middle Earth products content. I just really feel like as time has gone on, and I'm not, I don't even think it's as I've got older because I kind of just feel sorry for a lot of the younger generations because I feel like any time of innocence is just gone because even though things were very still very businessy at that point yeah you know the fact that it took peter jackson many different attempts to get the lord of the rings off the ground and it took going to the last studio in town to get it yeah. greenlit really says something whereas these days you would there would be no hesitation about taking on a property like that but it definitely wouldn't be executed with the same level of sincerity. And I think that's what's what's disappeared now, is that mm-hmm. every property is game, and yes. it's all about the IPs, but it's about making things that are very much like something else. So things don't have 
the opportunity to, to have their own identity anymore. It very much has to be in line with whatever else is going on at the moment. It's all about taking those brands that were established in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s and seeing just how much you can squeeze out of them until they're dry. I think I think when we look at Star Wars, they're taking it even beyond that. Yeah, yeah. And people these days, they're just getting the, the repackaged experiences, essentially. It's the TV dinners of movies that we're seeing now. And I feel the grip of it around my heart, to be honest. And I look at Lord of the Rings and I feel like there's a real threat that that could happen and it nearly happened with the hobbit i know that you would argue that it has certainly happened with the hobbit mm-hmm. um and i would say that yes some people involved in the, the, the making of those films so some powerful people that was definitely their intent but for me in terms of my personal appreciation of like for example lord of the rings and the world of middle earth i'm still enthusiastic about it i'm still enthusiastic about what's come before but i think that they are treading a very fine line and this this series could make or break it for many people. I, yeah. I I hope I never lose interest in in this, and and not just in terms of whatever things that they're releasing in the future. I mean, just like the occasional revisit that I have to the films that have come before and having a look over them. I hope I don't lose that that passion that I have for the series because it was a big part of my life, and so was Star Wars, and I don't feel that anymore. So I hope I don't lose it for Lord of the Rings, but it's happened before to me. It may happen again. You know, we'll see. And, you know, it's starting to happen with Alien. There we go, yeah. I'm dreading the sale of MGM because I have a funny feeling that Disney are going to buy it or or even Apple, I don't know, but it's... I think Apple could buy it. I really, I really think of the um, potential buyers. Apple are one that's uh, the company out there that are in need desperately of some sort of identity and streaming basis but they they don't have it yet i think apple are going to be in there and i i can see them being the leaders for no time to die if that comes up for grabs yeah i mean to be honest i'll be happier if apple bought it than disney at this moment in time but it's still not a great situation 100 percent not yeah it's not good anyway we're going into lots of the different avenues yeah we we really could do a whole episode on this so yeah. <laughs> to, to end on that very positive note about the doom and gloom of cinema as we know it um let's move on to what our next episode is yeah. going to be so next week we'll be uh reviewing everybody's favorite dick that's right <laughs> we'll be <laughs> we'll be reviewing dick tracy um as as many will know as the rubber-faced al pacino film um, I'm particularly looking forward to this. We've been talking about it for years that it was one that we were going to review. So yeah. I'm glad that we're finally getting round to it. So yeah, bring on Dick Tracy. Yeah, and it's ironic that now Madonna has become a rubber face herself. So yeah, <laughs> yeah no mask required. No, she'd fit right in there now, wouldn't she? Like. <laughs> so, anyway, but until then, I've been Gareth of Green, <laughs> um, and I'm a wizard, Harry. <laughs> I'm a lizard, Harry. Um, (laughs) I'm a what? (laughs) Thank you for listening.